a watch. So this is my bling. This is the best I've got. And uh, I don't know how to set the time on it yet. So it doesn't work very well yet for me. But uh, what was interesting, though, is we went in there, and uh, of course, dollars and the rupees over there are a lot different, so you can get a whole lot more for your dollars than you would buy in the United States. And uh, having done that and then checking out there, I was able to find out through Danny talking to the owner that he was a Christian. And uh, he was looking at maybe in the future uh, leaving his business that he owns there and going into the ministry and was asking us to pray for him. And so that's something that, of course, we will do. We will pray that God will enable him to do that, to go into the ministry and pray that God would bless him. So it was just a special blessing to know that I was participating in something like that and purchasing a watch from someone who is a brother in Christ. And that was really, really nice. Now, for today, we're going to turn our attention back to our study in Romans. So I want you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to consider the last part of this text, verse 1 and 2. Uh, specifically zeroing in on the transformation of the mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And just to remind you, these two verses are so essential to our understanding of the book of Romans. This is the conclusion and really the application of the first 11 chapters of Romans that dealt with the great doctrine of salvation. And as a result of the great and wonderful grace of God in our lives where he has justified us and made us righteous through Christ, we should respond in the appropriate manner, which is true biblical worship that requires total devotion and the transformation of the mind. And also, this is the foundation of the next few chapters of the book of Romans, because the things that Paul is going to call on us to do and will require of us as believers is going to be something that will necessitate what you find in verse 1 and 2. If you do not have these foundational verses really lived out in your life, you're going to find it very difficult to apply what is given to us in the next few chapters of Romans. So this is so, so very essential. That's why we spent the time we have so far working our way through these verses. Let me read what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The battleground of your sanctification is in the mind. What you think and how you reason greatly affects your worldview and the application of it. There can be no personal holiness without biblical thinking in its process. For years now, much of the evangelical church has been more emotionally driven, seeking an experience, uh, seeking things that help them encounter God with feelings, so that perhaps through that feeling or that experience, they would have some change in their walk with Christ. In fact, I find it interesting that just this weekend, the author of a very popular work that has really lasted for decades died this past weekend. His name was Henry Blackaby. He actually wrote the book Experiencing God. In that book, he was one that emphasized the experiencing of God 
over the revealed word of God. And there was a desire in his approach to help people understand how they could better experience God rather than even understand the truth of Scripture. This approach has led to a very clear, weak and shallow preaching in the church. And it's dominated more by practical application and is devoid of a biblical foundation. Some churches have opted for entertainment-oriented services to attract crowds, believing that if they're more like the world, then it will make the church more relatable and more needed. Just this past week, I read of a mega church that was going to make their church service, their morning worship on this Super Bowl Sunday themed after that event. Let me just read the advertisement. And this is one of many churches that are doing this. Uh, the church advertisement read this way, catch the big game on the big screen. Join us for a full day of football fun, including your favorite game day snacks, games, and more. As you walk into our normal worship services on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 11.30 a.m., there will be games to play and a great community to spend time with. Join us again in the afternoon at 3.30 p.m. for the tailgate party with your favorite snacks and games and more fellowship. When the game begins, we will have a watch party in the worship center on the big screen and bring your favorite chair. Don't miss the fantastic opportunity to blend worship, fellowship, and the thrill of the Super Bowl in one unforgettable day. Bring your friends, your family, and your snacks to share. It's a Sunday like never before. All ages are welcome to enjoy the festivities. Now, I want to be very clear. That's never happening here. <laughs> Just to be sure you understand. This is the Lord's Day. And we're going to give our attention to the Lord on that day. This is a symptom, by the way, of a bigger problem that has been growing more and more in the last few decades. Our worship and our walk with God has become more external than internal. It has become more fleshly than spiritual. And the emphasis is more on success than sanctification and how someone feels than rather than how someone thinks. And you need to understand something. This needs to be underlined in our thoughts today the minimization of the mind is a dangerous thing in the Christian community. And I'm not saying, as I even shared the last time I was in the pulpit here, that, you know, we need to be purely academic. I'm not saying that. Academics play a great part in this. But just to say that that's something we don't want to have and we want to be careful not to become people who think is very, very dangerous in the church. It leads to where we have gotten already, where there's a great proliferation of false doctrine floating through the churches, and more and more people are being seduced into the thinking of the world rather than the thinking in the mind of Christ. R.C. Sproul stated these words, and I quote, Christians are called to be different in their way of life. And that will only happen if we pattern our thinking after the word of God. We are called to be nonconformist, but our nonconformity rests not so much in our diet or our clothes or that kind of stuff, but in the transformation of our lives by the renewing of our minds. Our uniqueness is to be discerned, first of all, in how we think. He went on to say, we are intellectual nonconformists. That's the first mark of the Christian lifestyle if it's going to be authentic at all. 
We do not buy into the values of the world. We do not buy into the axioms of the world. We do not buy the evaluations and the judgments of this world because we look at the world, we look at man, we look at the state, we look at the church, we look at the whole creation from the perspective of God himself if we have the mind of Christ. And he's exactly right. Now, devil, the devil has understood this problem all along. He understands that if he can get into our thought life, if he can get into our mind and the way we reason and the way we think, he can have us. And this is something he started all the way back in the beginning. And I want to take you there just for a few moments. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and here we have the story of the serpent, the devil, who was in the garden with Adam and Eve, who was more cunning than any other of the creatures in the garden, garden. And he now comes to Eve to tempt her to sin against God. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Let me read these verses, and then I'll make a few comments about it. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which God the Lord, the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, I want you to notice just a couple of things about this text. Notice, first of all, that Satan challenges what Eve heard God say, and importantly, more importantly, what he meant by what he said. He wants Eve to think about it. Think about it. Now, Eve responds and repeats back to Satan what God said, with the exception that she adds one of the thought that she said, God said, nor shall you touch it. Now, we don't know if God said that. It's not recorded in the text. But one thing we do gather from this text is that she surely understood what God said, that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. She got that part. She got it. But Satan places her mind in a series of doubts. He begins to help her think differently. He says to her, you won't die. Right out the gate, you won't die. In other words, God lied to you. You won't die. In other words, the idea from the text is, is that God is keeping you from your full potential. You can know more. You can understand more. He's keeping you from your best life now. In other words, if you eat of the tree, you will be able to know what God knows. You will be able to understand what God understands. You will be able to comprehend more than if you never ate of it. So in other words, God obviously, Eve, is keeping you back from all that you can be. I mean, as Satan would go on to say, I mean, after all, think about it. Why would God create this wonderful place and put you and your wonderful husband Adam in here and then put a tree in here that has the potential to kill you. That doesn't make any sense. After all, when God created everything, did he not say that it was all good? 
So how can it be all good if he's created this tree in the Garden of Eden that could kill you and your children? So he begins to plant in the mind of Eve the possibility that God is lying. That God is actually a liar. And that God is not only a liar, but he's very cruel. That he would place this tree in the garden that would not only kill you, but could kill your children. And that you're going to be tempted with this tree daily. And that he also is a killjoy. That God really has no desire for you to fully enjoy your full potential as a human being. The point is, is that he was asking Eve to think about it. Just think about it. As a result of what happened there, the devil led Eve to think differently about what God said. And also, not only that, but to question the very character of God himself. She discarded her normal biblical worldview of what she knew about God and his character and his trustworthiness and his word and opted to believe the lie. Satan knows that the battleground of the souls of men is their mind. And that your sanctification as a believer either succeeds or fails based upon what you know and what you believe and what you apply in your life. And you are, by the way, very extremely naive if you think this is not having an effect on you. We all live in it. None of us live in a bubble on our own. We all live in this media-driven society now. In fact, TV and social media and YouTube and books that you read, and even in some cases, preachers that you listen to can make your mind think differently, can persuade you in different ways, and the devil has found his way literally into every bit of this. What used to be unthinkable morally and highly offensive in our culture just 10 years ago is now approved of and rewarded and given a place of honor. This did not happen overnight. This is not something that all of a sudden we woke up to and it changed. This has been going on for years now. The dismantling of our biblical worldview and the placing of the Christian community in the kettle and slowly warming us up to the ungodly way of thinking in our culture. TV has, has played a very large role in this. Hours upon hours of sitting passively in front of the tube and watching things that are in many cases, sickening, and years ago would have made our grandparents vomit. And yet now it is something that is more commonplace and more normal in most Christian homes. And it should not be that way. I learned in India when we were over there that the explosion of smartphones among the Indian population occurred as a result of the COVID virus. That like us, a lot of their community was not able to meet together. Their churches were not able to meet together. So as a result of that, many of the people in the communities out there bought smartphones or purchased smartphones. I mean, you could go to the poorest of villages where they barely had the necessities of life, and yet many of them would have smartphones. And they would be taking videos and pictures. And although this can be a good thing because it can open the door for some good, solid teaching. I mean, we can get access to many people that we maybe could have never reached by giving them information of websites and places to go to have solid biblical teaching and instruction. But as you all know, it opens the cesspool of all that is out there in the world. 
No telling where that will go before it's all over with. It was the same in Kenya. I mean, one of the most popular buildings you would ever see are the green buildings that sell data. So you can have more data on your cell phones. According to a research group, the average time daily spent on the phone is four hours and 30 minutes a day, the average American. Another research that I found said that we check our phones an average of 144 times a day. Now, surprisingly, that's down 58% from the year before. I don't know what happened. Maybe we're doing it a different way. I don't know. There was one uh, viral tweet that went out by one particular person on social media. He said, my screen time is getting out of control. I can literally feel my brain chasing dopamine hits in the middle multiple times a day. Now, this is not something that's an isolated problem. It's a real problem in our culture. And what we need to understand is what we listen to, what we watch, what we entertain ourselves with, what we read, greatly affects how we think. The most important physical organ in your body is your brain. Now, we can do open-heart surgery. We can do transplants of hearts. We can transplant kidneys. We can transplant livers. We can transplant a whole lot of stuff. But they have yet to be able to transplant the brain. Now, I know they're trying. But the point is, is that the brain has a great impact on your body. And we're learning more and more now about the brain that what you do in your body impacts the brain. But the most important organ in your body is your brain. Many of us are very, very careful about the foods we eat, the chemicals we take into our bodies. We're careful to maintain a regimen of exercise so that we have healthy bodies and that we're strong as we age especially. But too often, we're very, very sloppy when it comes to our brain health. We're very sloppy as to what we allow in our brains. And much like the computer, as they said, you know, whatever, whatever you put in is what comes out. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Whatever we fill our minds with is what we're going to begin to spew out. The way we're going to act, the way we're going to think, the grid, the worldview by which we digest everything and the way we discern everything in our culture. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. That's a present imperative. That is an ongoing command that God gives to us to set our minds on things above, which clearly reference God, his word, heaven, Christ, and all of that that is with it. The word set your mind is a Greek word, phroneo. It's a very important word used throughout the Bible to refer to a mindset or setting your mind on something. It has the idea of letting your mind dwell on something or fixing your mind on it. Fixing your mind on it. And the point is not that you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The point is, is that you are so fixed on the things above that it transforms the way you think. The way you process those things around you. You remember the passage in Philippians 2.5. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind is that? A mind that is humble. A mind that sets aside its own particular priorities. A mind that sets others as more important than yourself. As Jesus illustrated with his own coming in the flesh. And Paul reminds us of how important this is in Romans 8, 5 and following. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
For to be carnally minded, that is fleshly minded, minded like a lost person, is to be spiritually deaf. He says, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is at hostile, is hostile to God. It cannot be subject to the law of God, nor can it be at all. Jesus also addressed this issue one time with Peter. You remember in Matthew 16, uh, it is accounted there of the time that Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to go to the cross and he was going to die. Listen to what it says in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Peter took it upon himself and began to rebuke Jesus. Now that's a step forward that I don't want to go. I'm not going to be rebuking Jesus. But Peter had that kind of boldness at that time. However, he had his mind set on the things of the earth, not on things in the heaven. So Peter began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Whew. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God. Jesus was aware of how the devil can affect the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, turn there just for a moment. 2 Corinthians 10, in verse 3 and following, a very important and very familiar passage. Paul talks about this battle that we have as the Christian life, and the battle resides literally in the mind. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3 and following. Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, that is, we are fleshly, we walk on this earth, we're physical, we do not war according to the flesh. It's not a physical fight. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or carnal, but mighty in God through the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity through the obedience of Christ. Now, just a brief reading of that text, you clearly get an indication where the battle rages. The battle rages with arguments, with thoughts. It argues in the mind of men. In fact, in verse 4, Paul references this word called strongholds. Our weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. That Greek word in its verb form means to fortify, to build up a defense against. In this context, it means the demonically inspired arguments that threaten our biblical worldview. Those things that are, in many cases, may sound very logical, may sound very authoritative, may have some interesting reasoning to it. But they seem to be those things that are clearly against the word of God. And they are those strong points and arguments that the devil proposes through the philosophy of men. They come against us all the time. He also tells us in this passage that we are to cast down these arguments. We are to cast down, verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The word arguments is the Greek word logismos, and you hear the word logic in that. That's where we get our word logic from. The word logos is the word word. So we're talking about those things that are reasonable, those things that are logical, those things that make sense in some way. 
And so what he's telling us is that we are casting down those, uh, those logical thoughts, those reasonings that the world has. In fact, in this context, it would be those fallacious, deceptive reasonings that would be used against your Christianity. So you're to cast down these arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And the word knowledge is the Greek word gnosis. It's just the general knowledge about God, who he is and his character and all that he's about. And the point is, is that there are so many things in our world today that are being taught and being promoted as if it is superior than the things of God. That it exalts itself against the words of God. You and I are the nutcases because we believe what the Bible says. But we are to cast down those kind of arguments. And as it says in the same text, we are to bring every thought into captivity. That's not some thoughts, but every thought, every single thought, every act of reasoning is to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And the word translated here for captivity or to bring into captivity is a word that was used often in warfare. That you are to take complete control of it, in other words. As is the case whenever you would take an enemy captive in war, you don't say, hey, listen, you are now our captive, you're free to roam. It isn't like that at all. Whenever you take a thought captive, that means you don't give it any reign, any rule, any luxury, any time, any permission to dwell in your brain. This is so critical for us to understand. In fact, whenever you think about the believer's armor, right, in Ephesians 6, along with a whole list of armaments that are given to us that are primarily defensive, one of the defensive elements is the helmet of the hope of salvation. Why does Paul even refer to that? Because it protects your brain. It protects your way of thinking. And then he tells us of the... Uh, the, one of the offensive weapons, there's two actually listed, is the word of God in prayer. Uh, the word of God is one of those offensive weapons. But again, the word of God is that reasonable, logical thought that God gave to us as a means of defense. Any war has battles on a number of fronts. It isn't just one front where you battle. And one of the most overlooked areas of warfare especially in the Christian community, is what's called propaganda. Propaganda. And propaganda, I mean, warfare uses propaganda all the time. Listen, our culture is saturated with it. Saturated with propaganda. The whole desire behind propaganda is to get you to change the way you think about something. Just one way to think about that is this. Where you may at one time think something is very immoral and ungodly, propaganda would be used as a tool to persuade you to think about it a different way. It may use logic, it may use reason, it may use emotion, it may use all kinds of things to get you to think a different way. It may eliminate certain information that you would be critical to have a full understanding of the situation. But propaganda is used so often to try to do that. One of the masters of propaganda historically was Adolf Hitler. He understood how he could use propaganda to change the mindset of the German people to get to the point, listen to this, that they were okay with the killing of the Jews. Propaganda was a primary means of doing that. In fact, Erwin Lutzer in his book, Hitler's Cross, has a chapter entitled in that book, Propaganda Can Change a Nation. 
He says in this book, and I quote, Hitler had to learn the hard way that propaganda could serve his purposes even better than the political revolution could. In 1923, he tried to overthrow the Bavarian government by organizing a march through Munich, but it was aborted and ended in failure. He was tried for treason, but given the opportunity to defend himself, and to his delight, his speeches were widely read in the newspapers. Already then, he knew how to tap into the anger of the German people by railing against the unfair Treaty of Versailles and by propagating the widespread belief that the Jews were responsible for the loss of World War I. Hitler knew that the masses could be led if he could only tell them convincing lies. He went on to say in that same chapter, at the end of his trial, he was sentenced to 10 months in the Landsberg prison for treason. There he had time to write the Mein Kampf, in which he outlined his basic plan to implement his agenda. He had time to reflect and to articulate the value of propaganda. He showed how, with a skillful use of disinformation, he could almost certainly accomplish what the brown shirts could not do. He explained the techniques he used to win the hostile crowd to his side. He knew how he could tap into their anger, how he could handle their objections beforehand as they voiced them, and how to get them to see the reasons for his own philosophy. Went on to say, the function of propaganda in Hitler's regime was to attract supporters, to change people's minds so that they would be in agreement with his aims and philosophy of his movement. He wrote in Mein Kampf, the first task of the propaganda is to win people to subsequent organizations. The second task of propaganda is to disrupt the existing state of affairs and the permeation of the state of affairs with a new doctrine. I'll read a little more just so you get the idea of it. He went on to say, Yes, what begins as information turns out to become a law of the land, and woe to those who dare to oppose that law. Hate, he said, was more lasting than dislike. If he portrayed the Germans as victims and the Jews as the victimizers, hatred would fuel his agenda. It was chilling to think of what Hitler could have done if he would have had today's social media to gain his followers. His speeches broadcast over radio and propaganda movies were persuasive, but the modern means of instant communication, his task would have been much easier and, by the way, much more influential. And thanks to the Internet and TV, and passionate, a passionate leader with the appealing message and power of oratory could quickly create another cultural movement that would be destructive to the world. In Hitler's Germany, the people were to see and hear only what the government wanted them to see and hear. Does that sound familiar? The Nazis censored film productions and textbooks to be used in schools. Books that did not match the Nazi idea were burned and outlawed. Children's picture books demeaned the Jews and emphasized the glories of the Aryan race. Goes on and tells more and more about that. But you see, and you can clearly look at it historically, how much the propaganda influenced the people of Germany, so much so that they became comfortable with the atrocities that occurred there. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Auschwitz, I am told in that camp where 1.2 million people were murdered, there's a display of thousands of children's shoes. Once belonged to the little ones that were killed in the camp. When Hitler began his pursuit, to kill the Jews, what he did is a disinformation tactic, propaganda. 
he began to say that putting these children in a position where they were starving is called a low-calorie diet. And the extermination of the Jews was the cleansing of the land. Euthanasia was referred to as the best modern therapy. Children were put to death in what is called children's specialty centers. Hitler's cronies seldom said they were going to kill people, even when the plans were made to exterminate millions. The leaders spoke only in abstract slogans such as the final solution. Now, if you think that is not repeatable, we're doing it today. Right here in the United States of America. We literally are killing babies in their womb. And what do we call it? Women's health care. Or we call it the right to choose. Fornication is no longer a sin of two people living together that are not married. It is living together. Homosexuality is called the alternative lifestyle. Trying to attempt to change the biological sex of a child from a male to a female or a female to a male is called gender therapy. There's a reason behind all of this, folks. It's the same idea that we have had for years and years and years. The devil understands the way to transform a culture and the way to transform your mind and your thinking is to make you think about it differently than what reality really is. Call it a different name. Make it something other than what it really is. An author by the name of Richard Terrell wrote, create a critical mass of people who cannot discern meaning and truth from nonsense and you will have a society ready to fall for the first charismatic leader to come along. That's exactly where we find ourselves. That's why I just find it so urgent to beg you as the Apostle Paul does in this text that you present your bodies a living sacrifice first of all and that you not be conformed to this world but you'd be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The battle's here, folks. We're in it. You're in it every day. You're in it every day with your children. You're in it with the raising of your family. All that you come in contact with when you leave this place and you get out into the world is an attempt to discredit the things of God. Now let's go back to the text in Romans. We have the first point we've already looked at, the desired presentation, which is the presenting of your bodies. And this is what we've spent the first couple of messages really dealing with is that God doesn't want half of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. There is no such thing, by the way, in the Christian community as a half-hearted disciple. God does not desire that at all. He wants every bit of you. Whenever he told his disciples, if you're going to be my disciple, you must be willing to take up your what? What's the word? Cross and follow me, which was an absolute total commitment to him, even to the point of death. He even said, you may lose your family members over following me. He said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And here, the same thing is true in response to the tremendous gift of salvation that he has given to us. He says, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And his point is, I don't want you to die right now, okay? We're not asking for you to die. We want you to live, but we want all of you now. In this text, what you have is this. The three things are asked for. He's asking for your body. He's asking for your mind. And he's asking for your will. He wants everything. 
And by the way, that should not even be in a that should not be a question to any of us. We should be more than willing to give all of that to Him, right? We live and breathe and breathe and have our being because of Him. We have salvation and grace and heaven to look forward to, and the deliverance from hell and the wrath of God and forgiveness of sin because of Him. So why not then, based on the mercies of God, present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your in verse one your reasonable form of worship or reasonable service you want to worship god listen set aside the candles and the robes and all the liturgy give yourself to god like this and you're worshiping god but now the second point is really a how-to how do we do this how do we give our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is our reasonable form of worship or service and it really boils down to this. The negative is not being conformed to this world, but the positive is allowing our minds to be transformed through God, through his word, through his spirit, so that we're able to prove what the will of God is. Now, this is beautiful. This really is beautiful. And as I told you, this verse is clearly academic. The transformation of the mind. I mean, God did give us a book, did he not? He gave us a book, 66 of them, by the way. And they have words and phrases, adjectives, verbs, nouns, pronouns. There's very specific phrases that he gives to us that we are to properly and accurately interpret so that we understand and accurately reflect the mind of God. If you want to know what God thinks, it's in the book. If you want to understand what his will is for your life, it's in the book. You don't need to seek any other experience, any other word from God. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, I don't need any other words from God. I have more here than I possibly can dissect the rest of my life. I have yet to understand all 66 books. Now, I've been at it for 35 years, and I still haven't plumbed the depths of it. I preached Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 so many times I forgot. And I still haven't been able to plumb the depths of these two verses. So he gave us a book so that we could understand who God is. And listen, I'm not against emotion, as I told you last time. I think emotion, uh, properly uh, exhibited, is definitely a reflection of our true worship. Singing, making joy in our hearts to the Lord, is a reflection of our understanding foundationally of who God is and how we think about God. But as has been stated, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. So the first thing he says in verse 2 is not to be conformed to this world. Now that's a negative way of saying don't let the world influence your thinking. Don't let the world influence your thinking because that's how he gets to us. He, he molds us, the devil does, by enabling us to kind of think the way the world thinks. We adopt certain values. We begin to screen things a little differently than the word of God. Or we might say, you know, that's a little offensive what God's word says, so we're not going to do that. And then the capitulation to the world begins. And as I told you last time, this, this could be translated, stop being conformed. It is a command. Or do not allow the world. It could be passive or active. Either way, the point is very clear. We are not to allow the world to conform us or to squeeze us into its image. And that is the, the desire of the world. And I just want to add one other thought here. We have to be very careful that we just, we just conclude that just because it has the word Christian on it, that all of a sudden it's okay. We can't just assume that anymore. It used to be that you were pretty, pretty well uh, assured of that if it was evangelical and it was kind of 
in that same genre of orthodoxy that it would be okay. That's not the way it is anymore. The devil's in the camp, and he's been in here for a while. And he's distributing his false doctrine and his evil way of thinking throughout the whole culture of Christianity, so much so that we think, sadly, in many cases, much like the world than we should. So we don't want to allow ourselves to be conformed to this world. In fact, the word translated here, conformed, the root word is the word we get schematics from. Schematics. And for those of you who are engineers, I mean, really, schematics are the full representation of the outward form of the thing, right? You're drawing up all the schematics of something so that you can see what it's like. And really, when he talks about being conformed, it's how we externally manifest ourselves because of the way we think inside. It always starts inside. So that was our first point, and we spent some time on that already, but let's kind of finish up this morning with this important point of making sure that we understand how we are to transform our minds. Look at verse 2 again. He says, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This again is a present imperative. It is a command. It's not optional. This is not something we have the choice to do or not do. This is what God requires of us in response to the beauty of the salvation that he's given to us is that we have our minds transformed. And the word for the English transformed is the word we get our word metamorphosis from. Now, I know many of our children in here, and surely the adults know, that one of the ways you learned about metamorphosis was the caterpillar to the butterfly, right? That's just how dramatic we're talking here. You once were an ugly, multi-legged thing crawling along a leaf, and then all of a sudden you come out with this beautiful set of wings to flutter around everywhere, and so gracefully so. And the point is, is that you and I are and were this ugly thing that was comprised of sin and evil in our mind and our thinking and our worldview. And as a result of having a transformed mind, we come out looking like the beauty of Christ. That's what he has in mind here. And he says that we are to have this transformation occur by the renewing of our mind. And by the way, the word translated here, renew, means a radical renewal. A radical renewal. A radical remaking of the mind. It is tragic to think that so many in Christianity do not believe that's even possible. But the Bible teaches us that it is. And the evidence of Christian life teaches us that it is. This same word transfigured here, or trans, transformed, is used over in Matthew 17, 2, where Jesus was transfigured before them. That's the same word. He was changed from his earthly manifestation, just a physical Christ, to his glorified self in the presence of his disciples. And 2 Corinthians 3, 18, this same word is used this way, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as it were in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That's talking about our spiritual growth. As we behold Christ in the word, we're slowly being transformed into the same image of Christ. That is so important for us to understand the transformation needs to occur. Where does it take place? It takes place in the mind. It takes place in the mind, your thinking process, what you believe, what you think, how you respond, your worldview, what you grid things through. This is a radical change of the inner man is what it is. 
The radical change of the inner man. Remember what it says in Ephesians 4. I just read this to you. You can see how this works. Ephesians 4.21. If indeed you have, been, you have heard of him and have been taught by him, as is the truth in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, that's the old way of thinking, that is. The way you used to think. The way you used to reason. How you uh, basically reasoned away your sin. You gave permission for your lifestyle. You allowed for things in your life that you should not allow for. But you and the old man, that's the way you were. And it says it grows corrupt according to its deceitful lust. But you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which is created according to God in righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place or opportunity to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who is in need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace or unmerited favor to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil, speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. All that is is a representation of a change of the way you think. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. By the way, one other thing I will add to this, and I don't want to belabor the point, but whenever I was over in India, one of the first things that struck me more than anything was the trash that was everywhere. When you go there, you're struck by that. In fact, it's customary that you throw your trash out on the ground, on the streets. Everywhere you go, it looks like Lexington County landfill all up and down the roads. It's absolutely incredible. The pastors, whenever they finished their meals, they had these little green paper plates. And where would they put them? In the trash can to be hauled off? No, they threw them out the back of the church on the ground. That's where they were. Dogs would come later and look up what spice they could handle. <laughs> and it was, frankly, one of the nastiest places I have ever been in my life. But you know what I thought about? I said, this culture has not been affected by the gospel yet. Because the gospel changes the way you think. And whenever you begin to think about these things, and this needs to be brought to the attention of the culture, even of the pastors, listen, you are a steward of even this planet that God has given to us. And even though it's not a biblical verse, cleanliness is next to godliness, right? We Listen, the reason why America is the way America is is because of the Puritan thought, because of the gospel affecting the culture around us. It changed the way they ate. It changed the way they worked. It changed the way they lived. It changed the way they presented themselves. That's where that all comes from. And yet, the Bible's telling us that whenever we have a transformed mind, this renewing of the mind will have an effect in basic elements of our life. How we respond to sin, how we respond to one another, how we love one another, how we forgive one another, how we are careful with our words and the list goes on and on david testified in psalm 119 11 
Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's where you're getting. You know where I'm going with this, right? We know that the transformation of the mind doesn't occur by reading good, good uh, narratives and good books that are written by Christian authors. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those kinds of minds that are literally saturated with Scripture. The only way a transformation of that sort will take place is by repeated, constant exposure to the written word of the living God. And the more word we hide in our hearts, the more familiar we become with the book that is given to us, the more God uses that by the power of his Holy Spirit to transform the way we think about everything. Eventually, you get to a point where you don't even have to think about what the right response will be. Your response will be automatically godly. And whenever something shows up and it's ungodly and inappropriate and wrong and biblically in error, you'll have this response that comes out of you. It says, this is not right. We are to allow ourselves to be saturated with the word of God. One of the first things that Paul prayed for when he wrote the letter to the uh, church at Colossae was that they would be able to be complete in Christ with all wisdom and teaching. He even prayed in the first verses of chapter 1 of Colossae that they would be filled with the knowledge of God in Christ. Later on in Peter, Peter wrote the same words that as he closes out his letter that you would be filled with the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so, so foundational to all of our thinking and all of our minds. And I am thankful to God that I know that most of you in this room, I'm sure, spend daily time in God's word. You spend the time necessary to help your mind be transformed by that. But it's more, let me go a little bit step further here, it's, it's more than academic. We're not just memorizing verses in the Bible and learning what the Bible says for the sake of knowledge. We have to apply what we read. That also is the exercise of the mind to transform the mind. So verse 2 says, don't be conformed or stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, the complete renewal of your mind and what's the purpose? Here's the purpose clause, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, before you think wrongly about this verse, this verse is not telling you as long as you do that, you're going to know which job to take or which spouse to marry. He's not talking about that kind of will. That's not what he's talking about. What he is simply saying is this. The more you have your mind transformed by the word of God, the more you think biblically about the world around you and everything that is going on, the more you will actually prove what the will of God is in your life. You will show forth what this kind of life leads to. It will lead to a godly response to a dying ungodly culture it will respond in the appropriate way to your wife or your husband it will respond in the appropriate way to your children and your discipline and the training of those children it will respond in the appropriate way to how you respond to your brothers and sisters in christ in the local church it will respond all the way through all avenues of life because you will be so biblically saturated that you will think and prove the will of god you will show it as good you will show it as acceptable and complete the word here, teleos means, complete will of God. And by the way, as I've told you before, if you really want to know the will of God in your life, it's not secret. God's not hiding it like hide and seek. Oh, you don't know where it is. He's not trying to do that to us. What we often do is we shortcut the desire of understanding the will of God by trying to go a different route. We want God to zap us one day or give us some sign or drop something out of heaven. 
or whatever to discern the will of God. And the will of God is easily discernible, folks. It really is. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the same thing Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is saying the same thing a different way. If you will allow your mind to be transformed by the word of the living God and the spirit of God, then you will be able to prove what the will of God in your life is. You will be so biblically saturated that you will have enough discernment to know to go here or not go here. Choose this job or not that job. Choose this spouse or not that spouse, right? We make it too awfully complicated because we want, we want the fast drive-through will. You know, give it to me, Lord. What is it, A or B? And he says, no, I want you to spend the time necessary in the discipline of the word of God so that you will become a person that is transformed in your way of thinking. Now, let me close with a couple of ending thoughts here. This is a challenge to all of us. It's a challenge to me because we can find ourselves so overwhelmed with so much in life to do. You know, we are a microwave community, but we sure don't live like it. You know, we, we, we shouldn't have all these things to do and all these things to get involved with. But we can get so busy, so busy with all of life that we neglect the most essential things in the word of God. And before you do anything else in your world, before you do anything else in your life, before you ever do anything in your morning and get going, I would encourage you to spend time in this book. Spend time in it. If you can stay awake at night, read it at night. For me, my mornings are the most valuable time for me because I'm awake then. But the point is you need to spend time in it. A couple of very practical approaches I'll share with you about that. If you want your mind transformed by the word of God, obviously you've got to do the first part, the negative part, don't be conformed to this world. Start getting rid of those things that are influencing you in an ungodly way. Rid yourself of those things. Rid yourself of those things that make you think differently than the way God says, or you entertain yourself with things that are not godly. Stop that. Secondly, begin the process of filling your mind with the things of God. I'm not saying you only read just scripture. You can read things written by godly men and women who have dissected the scripture. We have a rich history of that in the church, definitely for sure. I learned many, many years ago, whenever I was first introduced to Christianity and God saved me, because God in his own providence introduced me to John MacArthur. And through his ministry, it really radically transformed the beginning foundations of my Christian life. And the reason why is he told me something that I, I've never forgot of how to read the scripture as an early new believer. He said, take a book like the book of Ephesians. It's six chapters. For most of us, reading speeds, probably 30 minutes, maybe 35 minutes of reading. If you take that one book and you read it every day for 30 days, and by the way, the key to this is stay in one Bible. Okay? Don't just read all over the place. Get you a Bible that you like, that you love, and you read it 30 days, every day for 30 days. What's going to happen about 15 days in, you're going to say, I got this, I know this. But if you'll keep pressing through, you'll find out just how much of the word of God you did not know. You'll begin to understand more about what Paul wrote. And then one of the other blessings, which is a side benefit, is when someone says, oh, yeah, you know, when Paul said, finally, my brethren, put on the whole armor of God, you will know. That's on the right-hand column halfway down in my Bible. And I can go right to it. 
You do that with Colossians. You do that with Galatians. They're short books. First John, Second John, Third John, Peter, and so forth. You get to a bigger book like Matthew, Matthew's 28 chapters. That might be a tough one for you to read through every single day. But you can chop it up in four chapters apiece and work your way through it. And if you do that and you're faithful to it, you're going to find yourself much more acquainted with Scripture overall, first of all, academically, but you're going to be convicted as you read through it and God exposes you to the transforming mind that occurs with God's Word. Listen, I cannot express to you how important we understand this book. It's just paper and written letters and ink. It has so much power. Amazing power. Make sure you do what the Word of God says. Amen? Let's take a moment and close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you, Lord God, just for this time together in your Word. Lord, we are so unworthy of all that you have been so gracious to give us. We do not deserve this tremendous, great salvation. Yet you set your love upon us before the world ever began. You wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life long before the earth was ever created. And Lord, it is overwhelming that you would even do that. It is overwhelming that you would send your Son to complete the great work of redemption, to die for us and to forgive us of our sins. But Lord, you don't even leave us with that. You give us your Holy Spirit to live with us. You give us your word over 1,500 years, written by 40 different authors. And yet, Lord God, it's one book. We give you praise for that. We give you thanks for that, for the treasure you've given to us. And Lord, I also would want to add one thing, the tremendous freedom we have to do this today without any threat on our lives. Thank you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.